and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Welcome back to our section on objects from history, a hundred bloody objects. So, Jamie, what have you got for us today? Object number seven, a hand towel from the Titanic. SOS, great liners and great tragedies. At 11.40pm on the 14th of April 1912, the White Star liner RMS Titanic struck an iceberg in mid-Atlantic. Just under three hours later, the 882-foot-long, 52,000-ton ship sank. Of her estimated 2,200 passengers and crew, 1,500 perished. Yet hers was by no means the worst calamity involving passenger ships, and their history brims with drownings and disasters. This, then, is their story. So, Jamie, throw me a line. Where do we start? Let's start with that hand towel, Tom. It actually belongs to a friend of mine. He acquired it at an auction. But originally, it was pinched from the Titanic by someone called Ruby Sutton, who is the maid to Lady Duff Gordon. She put... Lady Duff Gordon aboard the Titanic in her first-class cabin and thought she'd have a keepsake, so took the towel. And the rest, as they say, is history. And that hand towel is the only object, probably, that made it off the Titanic before she sailed from Southampton on her maiden voyage. I remember when the first submersible went down to have a look at the Titanic and the first images came back. I remember the voiceover when they saw the captain's cabin, the door was open, and the bath was there, the pedestal bath. The comment was, my, someone left the taps on. I still remember that. made a great impact. Oh, dear. No points for for comedy there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing that interests me is that the Titanic, it wasn't the only ship of its class. In fact, it wasn't the first. The class of ship is known as the Olympic, which comes from the first ship named in that class, one of which was HMHS Britannic. Yes, His Majesty's Hospital Ship. She was the third in the class, same design, same designer, Thomas Andrews, who actually went down on the Titanic. But the Britannic was launched in 1914 and wasn't actually commissioned until 1915, at which point she was immediately requisitioned by the War Office for use as a hospital ship uh, during the Great War. And there are pictures of her painted completely white with red crosses on the side. Her first function was really the Dardanelles campaign. She served there, and less than a year later, after she had been brought into military service or hospital service, she struck a mine on November 21st, 1916, off the island of Kia in the Aegean and sank. She disappeared below the water after less than an hour. 30 people died, over a thousand were taken off, but that made it two of the Olympic class uh, sitting under the waves uh, at the bottom of the sea. 
although only 30 lives lost was uh, pretty remarkable. Yes, they managed to get people off at that time. And of course, it wasn't the mid-Atlantic. It was the waters of the Aegean, so it was much warmer. And it was near an island. So there were plenty of other ships around to help get those survivors on board and away from the wreck. But it just shows that in spite of all these watertight compartments and those safety features, those ships were desperately vulnerable. Uh, the, the last ship remaining from that class, Olympic, uh, had a much longer career. She went on until 1934. She had originally been commissioned before the Titanic as lead ship. And she had a remarkable time. She was known as the Old Reliable. She also was requisitioned during the war, but used as a troop carrier rather than as a hospital ship. But she had various mishaps along the way, despite her long service. Oh, she had a long and chequered career. And it's amazing that given her war service, she didn't end up at the bottom of the sea as well. Uh, But she was a remarkable ship, had a remarkable story. In 1911, she had her sort of maiden voyage in June that year. In September that year, she collided with HMS Hawk, a cruiser, in the Solent. She cut across the Hawk. And later on, during the inquiry, the captain of the Hawk said that because of the size of the Olympic, his ship was just pulled right into her. And it was a pretty catastrophic collision. Olympic was damaged badly. She had two of her watertight compartments flooded. She had damage to her screw propeller. The Hawk almost capsized at that moment, but but didn't. But it could have been a serious emergency. Because of that collision, because of the repairs that had to be done back at Harland and Wolfe to the Olympic, and because the Olympic later had uh, another problem in the middle of the Atlantic and lost one of the screw propellers, parts of the Titanic that was being built at the time had to be cannibalized. And it's one of the reasons that Titanic's maiden voyage was subsequently put back and why the Titanic sailed in the middle of iceberg season. So you can say that what happened to the Olympic really had a direct impact and had a causal effect, really, on the eventual sinking of the Titanic, her sister ship. But Olympic sailed on. Uh, She also had a few problems with crew. There was a mutiny in 1912. That was probably because of the aftermath of the Titanic. When Titanic sank, there were only 20 lifeboats on board out of a possible 48. Four of those were collapsible. And we know what happened to the Titanic and to the people who went down. But there was a mutiny because of this. 54 sailors mutinied until the Olympic was given more lifeboats and certainly wasn't dependent on the collapsible lifeboats that the White Star Line uh, seemed to favour. Those men were arrested. They were going to be charged. But in the end, they got their jobs back. But it just showed the tensions that were rife and the industrial problems that were prevalent uh, in the White Star Line at the time. Well, I have to say, the word collapsible lifeboat does not inspire confidence. Particularly in an emergency. And we've seen it time and time again with other liner accidents that those collapsible lifeboats are never going to be in the right place at the right time or have the right people to put them together uh, when you need it. 
um, as the ship is going down. And those ships can go down extremely quickly, as we saw with the Britannic out in the Aegean. But she was a successful troop carrier in the Great War. She was hugely successful. She carried Canadians, Americans, Brits. In 1918, as she was carrying American troops to France, she was potentially about to be attacked by U-103, a German U-boat. Olympic's captain turned the ship and rammed the U-boat and her propellers actually cut the U-boat in half and the U-boat had to be scuttled. It just shows that she had some very close shaves during that time. And during that time, she was painted dazzle camouflage, she was given guns. So she was essentially a a military ship by that stage, a huge ship. Um, Had she gone down, that would have been a catastrophic loss. As it was, when the Britannic went down, she was the largest ship to sink during the whole of the Great War. We wouldn't have wanted to see the third of that class hit the bottom of the sea. But she made it all the way through to 1934, 1935, when she was taken away to be scrapped. Yes, and in the meantime, she had had a few more close shaves. She had managed to collide with a light ship outside New York. Uh, Seven out of the 11 crew of the light ship were killed. No one aboard the Olympic was killed. But by that stage, because of the depression, because the great days of the liners were over, there was really no demand for those ships. It was very difficult to make a profit. And that's the reason that the White Star Line and Cunard eventually merged uh, during the 30s, because no one was making money from that anymore. And even great Cunard liners like the Mauritania were simply turned into cruise ships going up the coast of America. So although she was scrapped in 19, uh, well, between 1935 and 1937, she didn't completely disappear because various parts of her were auctioned off and reappeared in different buildings around the country. Oh, completely. And and the owner of the White Swan in Annick was such a fan of the Olympic, the old reliable, and had actually been on the ship uh, when she was a liner, ended up bidding for various fixtures and fittings of the ship and got many of the mirrors and doors and stained glass windows from the first class lounge, which are now in the Olympic suite at his White Swan Hotel. And the revolving door too of the first class lounge from the Olympic is, I believe, the revolving door that's at the front of the hotel to this very day. And there are various other parts such as in uh, the Cutler's Hall in Sheffield and Spath House Hotel, Clayton Lemores, has some of the furniture. Even St John the Baptist Catholic Church in Paddyham, Lancashire, has some timber panelling. So she lives on in various places. There was a recycling, not just of the parts of these great liners, but also their roles, their functions. And quite often, they became more successful in their secondary roles than in their primary ones. If you go back to the 19th century, in 1858, the Great Eastern was launched. She was Brunel's Leviathan and was renamed the Great Eastern because she actually didn't go down the slipway first time round. She was launched sideways. She was so huge. Brunel wanted her to be six times larger than any other ship afloat. And she was huge. She was 700 700- 
feet long. She had paddles, she had propellers, she had six masts, and she was catastrophically expensive to run. She wasn't a successful passenger ship. She very quickly ended up being used to ferry Canadian troops during the American Civil War. And her most successful role was as a cable-laying ship in the 1860s. She laid six or seven cables across the Atlantic, was used in the Pacific as well, and ended up being scrapped in the 1880s. And if you want to see a bit of recycling here, her topmast was used as a flagstaff, installed on the cop at Anfield, Liverpool City's football club. So parts of her are still seen every weekend. There's a marvellous picture of Brunel standing by the anchor chains, the launching chains, actually, of the SS Great Eastern. It was launched in 1858. He died in 1859. Yes, I think it took a lot out of him. And again, the, the ship was so much bigger than the SS Great Britain, which came earlier and is now in Bristol. But it was very difficult to make those ships economically viable. Uh, Just as it proved with the larger liners later on in the 20th century, given the economic downturn that came after the First World War. If you walk through London, just off Regent Street, you come to the famous shop Liberty. Yes, and Liberties, again, is a classic example of recycling parts of ships because the side street frontage of it is a sort of Tudor-Bethan in its style. But in fact, it's made from the recycled timbers from two 19th century ships of the line, HMS Hindustan and HMS Impregnable. And in fact, the length of that store is the same length as HMS Hindustan, and the flaws of it come from the decking of HMS Hindustan as well. So in many areas, in many buildings throughout Britain, you'll find timbers that come from former warships or former passenger liners. Strangely, the little coffee house that I used to have in Westminster has a bay window, and above it, holding the whole window and the building up, is a very hard piece of oak, curved oak. And it was always my contention that that piece of wood had probably started off life in a ship somewhere and then had been recycled to make the corner of that building because you couldn't bang a nail into it. Well, it was probably a figurehead. I was the figurehead. (laughs) I like to think that, Tom. (laughs) Very good. The great rival to the White Star Line was Cunard. And they had a series of ships, including the Mauritania. Yes, she was a remarkable ship, and she held the Blue Ribbon East and West prize for the fastest crossing of the Atlantic for 20 years. And she was launched before the White Star rivals the Olympic class. Uh, Mauritania was launched in 1906. She was absolutely loved by passengers who crossed the Atlantic. The Americans loved her. She captured that market. And it was one of the reasons that the White Star Line had to respond uh, so quickly. But come the war, she and her sister ship, Aquitania, were immediately requisitioned by the military to carry troops across the Atlantic and to ferry them elsewhere in the world. So they were extremely busy, and they were lucky not to have sunk uh, in the same way that the hospital ship Britannic had sunk. 
So they survived. And Mauritania actually went on till 1934. It was scrapped at exactly the same time, really, as the Olympic was scrapped. So they were hit by war, depression, and the end of the luxury liner era, I suppose. But one of the things that we come to in the Second World War, which also applies here, is the reason they were successful as troop carriers was their speed, that the U-boats, if they didn't intercept them, really couldn't catch them. Well, yes, whether it was in the First World War with the Mauritania or the Second World War with the Queen Mary, they just went at an incredible speed. I mean, the Mauritania could do 24 knots. The Queen Mary in the Second World War could do 28 knots plus. So these are incredibly fast, and no U-boat could catch up with that, either above the water or below the water. They were often the only way of getting large numbers of troops to where you wanted to have them. I mean, the Queen Mary in the Second World War could carry 15,000 troops. So you can see why they were so useful, why they were employed by the military as soon as war broke out. Well, at 28 knots, you could almost water ski. You could completely water ski behind that. I've water skied behind slower. (laughs) (laughs) The waves would be interesting. Um, So one of the sister ships to the Mauritania was the famous Lusitania. That was one of the great tragedies of maritime history. She was hit by torpedoes from a submarine off the old head of Kinsale, County Cork. Again, went down very quickly. Only six lifeboats were launched. Huge numbers of children were aboard. They were killed. It was one of those moments that nudged America towards getting involved in the Great War. There were 139 Americans on board and 129 of them died. It caused an absolute storm in America. The Germans had warned through the American newspapers that they would take action against any ship heading to Britain. It would be seen as either a hostile act or certainly anything in British waters was seen as a legitimate target. After that sinking, there was an enormous barrage of propaganda from both sides. The British really ramped it up on that Lusitania point. She became this totemic ship and an example of German atrocity and brutality in the same way that the execution of Edith Cavell had been uh, held up as an example of German brutality. Despite the fact that she was almost certainly carrying several million rounds of small arms uh, ammunition and various other explosives and war material. Uh, It wasn't just passengers at the bottom of the sea, it was also ordnance. But it played into the hands of the British very well, even though it was a great tragedy. And it was one of those that people remember, whereas so many of the others lost during war with even higher casualty rates have slipped into the ether, have just been forgotten, have faded from collective memory. And then we come to World War II, 1939, and these big ships are called up again. Yes, they were. It led fairly quickly to one of the greatest maritime disaster and loss of life that Britain has ever suffered. And that was the Lancastria. Most ships end up with nicknames. During the Second World War, the Queen Mary was called the 
Grey Ghost. During the First World War, the Olympic was called the Old Reliable. The Lancastria was unfortunately nicknamed the Old Soup Tureen. So you can get some sort of impression of how she was regarded and how she looked. She was 16,000 tons. She wasn't huge, but she was extremely important during the evacuations from France. By the 3rd of June, 1940, most of the evacuations of Dunkirk had been completed. There were many men left in France who were looking for a way out. Some of them got down to the south of France, but others made their way to the west coast of France. The British mounted an operation, not Operation Dynamo, which was really the attempt to get people off the beaches of Dunkirk, but Operation Ariel, which is a lesser known operation, which was to try and get many people off the coast further down, particularly out of places like Saint-Nazaire. And the Lancastria was one of the key ships involved. So the tragedy began to unfold because people were crammed onto the ship. It wasn't used to taking that many people. She ended up, apparently, with up to 7,000 people on board and immediately started getting attacked by the Luftwaffe. Three bombs struck her. One went down a funnel, apparently. The ship capsized, and there are vivid descriptions of how uh, one lifeboat was launched carrying women and children, and that collapsed, and many men broke their necks, jumping with their... Mayweather's life jackets into the sea, either hit the hull or their necks were broken. Others were drowned in the oil. It was a total calamity. And later on, the British government did quite a lot to hush that up, which is why Lancaster is really not a household name or a historical name that people know. It doesn't resonate in the same way that Lusitania resonates from the First World War. So it was a complete catastrophe. Many, many people died. I guess the reason is that the Dunkirk success, even though it was a withdrawal, or it was really a, a retreat, wasn't it, that they'd painted that as a great success in saving the British Expeditionary Force. But this was there was nothing good about this story. Yes, and unless you can put a positive spin on it in the same way that the Lusitania had a spin put on it in terms of German barbarity... There's little you can say about it. Actually, the Luftwaffe apparently did, according to eyewitnesses, start strafing people in the water. There were some survivors, and there was a ship close by called the Enrose, another liner. She was bigger. She was 20,000 tons, and she did pick up some people from the water. She herself was hit by a bomb that destroyed the bridge, killed several of the crew. Captain Norman Savage was the captain of the and even though he had a leg broken and dead crew lay all about him, he managed to guide the ship back to Britain using a pocket compass and a sextant. So he managed to get quite a lot of people on his ship back to the UK, whereas the Lancaster had already sunk. So the Lancaster certainly stands as the worst maritime disaster that this country has ever suffered. But because there were many years of war ahead, because of the news blackouts of the time, because of the evacuation from Dunkirk, we really don't remember her, and we probably should. Now, the very largest liner was RMS Queen Mary. 
Yes, the Queen Mary, again, had an extraordinary war career, just like the Olympic and the First World War. She was huge. She was over 1,000 feet long. She was incredibly fast at 28-plus knots. She could carry 15,000 troops. At one stage, she carried 16,000 American troops. And that was the moment later on in the war where she was hit by a 90-foot wave and keeled over to 52 degrees. And it's always said that if it had been another two or three degrees, she probably would have capsized. So she had quite a lot of adventures. Earlier in the war, on 2nd of October 1942, she actually struck HMS Curaçao, a cruiser, and removed the last 50 feet of Curaçao's stern. The number of lives lost were 239. It was one of those disasters that often happen when you get different ships of different sizes, different classes, some military, some naval, and some civilian. You get these terrible disasters occurring because it's a communications problem. And just as you had Olympic um, being rammed by HMS Hawk in 1912, so you have these sort of accidents happen even more frequently during war. And the Queen Mary was very lucky to have escaped that. She sailed on. None of these ships during the Second World War could afford to stop and pick up survivors. You just had to let them drift on the whole into the Atlantic. And those commanders who stopped to save men were very brave because they too could have been struck um, by torpedoes or by U-boats surfacing and taking them on with their guns. But the ships that did help the survivors of the Curaçao obviously took a decision at that moment that they weren't at risk. And the main ship to save was the Grey Ghost, the Queen Mary, who just sailed on. There was a friend of mine whose father was an admiral in the Royal Navy, but during the war he was a young lieutenant. And till his dying day, he was haunted by all the people they had to let go into the waters of the Atlantic of ships that had been sunk. And he said he remembered the blue lights on their life jackets just winking away and fading into the darkness. And he and his crew could do nothing about it. And I think that those crews that went backwards and forwards on the convoys across the Atlantic had a terrible time. Yes, as did the ones going north to Russia. Oh, yes, the Mamansk convoys were notorious. She served many purposes, the Queen Mary, including carrying the mysterious Colonel Warden on various trips to and fro from America. Colonel Warden was the nom de guerre for Winston Churchill. So the Grey Ghost had many important roles. And now she is a tourist attraction in Long Beach. But at least people can walk her decks and see why she carried so many troops during the Second World War. She was an amazing ship, still is. In fact, she's a hotel. I think you can stay there. <laughs> Should we go stay there? I won't be booked on our next broadcast. Let's go and stay there, broadcasting live. <laughs> I'm Queen staying Mary. at the White Swan in Annick first. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, yeah. <laughs> Good dog walks up there. <laughs> the most tragic of all the German mishaps on the sea in the Second World War was... The Wilhelm Gustav, which was sunk by a Soviet submarine, S-13, in January 1945. She was part of Operation Hannibal, taking refugees and troops away from Danzig. These were people who were fleeing the Soviet advance from Silesia and East Prussia, were crowding 
onto the ships that were desperately trying to pe- take people away back to uh, Germany and get them away from the fighting. So just like the Lancaster in 1940 for the Brits, the Wilhelm Gustloff was hugely overcrowded. There were four captains on board, one of them belonging to the Wilhelm Gustloff herself. The others were basically other ships' captains who were crowding on. And so they were all bickering and infighting on what should happen. They were accompanied by another ship, the Hansa, and by two torpedo boats. The torpedo boat uh, got a malfunction, so did the Hansa, so they fell back. The captain of the Wilhelm Gustloff decided to head for the open sea into the Baltic. They were hit by three torpedoes from the Soviet submarine S-13. The ship went down very quickly. It's estimated that over 9,500 people died from that ship. Uh, Over 1,000 were saved, but the losses were totally catastrophic. And because it was coming to the closing stages of the war, because Germany was on the losing side, because there were so many terrible stories of atrocity and carnage, and because of what the Nazis had done during the war, it's just one of those forgotten chapters. But it was a terrible loss of life, and there were a lot of civilians on board that ship. It wasn't the only ship like that that went down with with a huge number of people on board. No, because a few months later, in April 1945, again, not long before the war finally ended, Another ship, the Goya, was carrying people from Danzig, and that was hit by torpedoes from a Soviet submarine as well. Her losses were about 6,500. Only just over 100 were saved, pulled from the water. So these are the sort of losses that can occur in war, and it just shows the role yet again that liners played. It showed the price that some of them paid in their new roles as transports. After the war, the aeroplane began to take over people's ability to travel around the planet. However, there are still some notable ships that sailed the seas, including RMS Canberra. In the post-war era, liners have still found a role. Yes, they have, Tom. And you need look no further than the Canberra. She had a remarkable role during the Falklands War in 1982. She had been cruising in the Mediterranean, was called to Gibraltar and found she had been requisitioned by the Ministry of Defence to carry three commando 9,000 miles across the Atlantic down to the Falklands. She was in the thick of the action. She moored in San Carlos water, was there as the entire Royal Navy flotilla down there was attacked by Argentinian A4 Skyhawks she survived. She suffered very little damage. After the Falklands, there were Argentinian pilots saying they didn't attack her because they thought she was a hospital ship, so stayed away. And she was painted white, just like HMHS Britannic in the First World War. But luckily, she didn't suffer the same fate. And had she been sunk, she she wouldn't have been submerged as it was very shallow water there. But she did her role very well, took troops to recapture or station themselves on South Georgia that had already been recaptured before the Falklands. After the Falklands War, she actually took 
and repatriated Argentinians back to Argentina from the Falklands. So this ship, nicknamed the Great White Whale, like all those ships in war, given a nickname, it's absolutely obligatory. Uh, she had done extremely well, and her captain was awarded a CBE. So that's the last time that this country has used a liner in the midst of a war. Yeah, and I mean, by the time I travelled to South Africa in the early 80s, I took a ship and I had to go on a container ship because there was no such thing as a liner to go from Southampton to Cape Town. Most of those ships now are large floating platforms carrying large people uh, enjoying their 24-hour buffets on cruises around every corner of the world. So, Jamie, I normally ask you at this point about a PS, but in fact, I have a PS for this particular podcast. It turns out that my mother's godmother, who was called Mel Russell Cook, her maiden name was Smith, and her father was Captain Smith of the Titanic. And she, when my mum met her after the war, came to stay at their house with a man called David Rolt, but they weren't married. And she said she wasn't going to marry him because she was very unlucky. Her father had gone down with the Titanic. Her mother was run over by a taxi in front of her. Her husband shot himself, and both her twin children were killed. One in the war, and one died of polio. Can anything else go wrong? I'm not sure she's the sort of lady you should actually let on about. It would probably (laughs) sink immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. Hopefully we've shown in the short history of the liner there was both catastrophe and triumph. Many of these ships carried out important tasks for which they were not originally designed and of which their designers such as Thomas Andrews of Titanic fame had not even dreamt. They appeared in only a brief moment in history but represented the height of luxury travel and romance. But war can always intrude. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.